0: Romans chapter 12, and we begin at verse 9. This is God's Word to us this evening. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not... with good. Amen.
1: Um, It really is so lovely to be back here this evening. Thank you so much to John for your welcome and to both Nigel and John for your invitation to be here. Um, It's tremendously encouraging to see church so full as well. So um, thank you so much for allowing us to come back and, and worship with you this evening. Do keep your Bibles open at Romans chapter 12 as we look at these verses together. We're just going to get straight into it. As you you listen to the passage being read from Romans chapter 12, verses 9 to 21, I'm sure that you noticed that it is a bit different, isn't it? It's not the, the typical style in which Paul normally writes large chunks of his letters, this volley of short, sharp, staccato-like instructions with very little elaboration. The other thing that I'm sure you'll have picked up on is that essentially this is a big list of commands. I don't know if you noticed how many of them there are. There are 27 to be exact, and it's not going to be a 27-point sermon. You'll be glad to know. But it is strange that Paul gives so many commands in such a short section of writing. It's even more strange because up until this point in Romans chapter 12, Paul hasn't really done very much by way of giving instruction at all. In Romans. In fact, I was somewhat intrigued as to how many instructions there were in chapters 1 to 11 of Romans, and I'm open to correction on this, but by my count, in all of chapters 1 to 11, I can only come across three instructions, and yet here in the second half of Romans chapter 12, there are 27 in one or two paragraphs. Romans 12 does represent something of a pivot in the epistle, In some senses, the beginning of chapter 12 marks a shift from doctrine to duty, from belief to behavior. And of course, we have to be very careful not to divorce the behavior from the belief. The latter always flows from the former. And so, when we come to consider the commands of verses 9 to 21, we have to make sure that we keep them plugged into the gospel, as it were. The gospel is where the power comes from. The gospel is where the the fuel comes for in the Christian life, and we will run out of battery in our efforts to keep these commands if we do not keep them plugged in to the gospel. It's interesting, there is a, a little bit of debate amongst New Testament scholars about what Paul is actually doing in these verses, and some think that he is stringing together helpful principles from a variety of sources, the Old Testament the teachings of the Lord Jesus himself, even from some other ethical wisdom sayings that were around at the time. Others think that he's providing a general summary of his own ethical teaching, albeit with the obvious omission of anything by way of sexual ethics, which of course he mentions elsewhere in his writings. And then some others think that he is rehearsing already familiar Christian teaching here that he is even drawing upon some of the material that was used for catechetical instruction in the early church, that he is reminding these Roman Christians of the life that they have been called to as the people of God. And I think actually that is the key to understanding this section of the letter. The verses before us are a description of the life that we have been saved to as Christian believers. Now, it is a set of commands, but it is easy to come across a set of commands like this and read them as burden after burden after burden. But I think that is to misread them altogether. Paul isn't wanting to burden us here. He's wanting to help us see that because the greatest burden of our sin has been lifted, because the Lord Jesus Christ has borne the burden of our sin in his body on the cross, this then is how we should live as his people, both in the church and in the world. So this is not a burdensome list. This is, as the the title of the sermon suggests, this is a description of the good life. This is what we have been saved to. These are the virtues that ought to characterize our experience together in the Christian community. And so as we we work our way through them together this evening, perhaps a helpful way to think of these verses is to think of them as a recipe, as a recipe for authentic or sincere Christian love. Love. And each little staccato sentence is like an ingredient being added into the recipe. And it's that opening sentence in verse 9 that holds the key to understanding everything else that follows. Paul says that love must be sincere. That's the underlying motif of the whole section. Paul might not talk specifically about love in each verse, but he does keep coming back to love as the single most important virtue that forms the essence of Christian discipleship. So let's think about this recipe for Christian love. What does it look like in the church, the family of God? And what does it look like for us to love the world, for us to love our enemies? First of all then, love in the church, love in the family of God. Love in the church, sacrificial love, is incredibly, or ought to be incredibly committed. As we've already mentioned in verse 9, our love must be sincere. If you've got an ESV, I think it says genuine. The Greek word for sincere here literally means unhypocritical. And so what Paul is saying is that our love for others must be the real deal. It must be sincere. It's a bit like the difference between something being gold-plated and something being solid gold the whole way through. If it's just gold-plated, it has a a veneer of authenticity but it isn't solid gold the whole way through. Real love, genuinely Christian love, will be solid gold the whole way through. And so in the church, we aren't to be polite and give the appearance of warmth on the outside while despising and belittling people in our hearts. Our love must be sincere. We're all thinking about how we're going to heat our homes this winter, aren't we? I'll not ask for a show of hands as to who's already put the heating on. Um, One of the things that I, I discovered last winter, because my younger brother had it on the TV screen, I don't know if we thought that this was actually gonna work, but knowing Daniel, I wouldn't be that surprised, tell you the truth. If you search on Netflix, you can actually find this. I think it's gonna come up onto the screen. There we go. You can find a fire that will just play and sparkle in the background on your TV. It might look nice, but it doesn't actually do anything, does it? Our world is full of love like that. Love that looks impressive, but actually whenever you begin to dig underneath the surface, it doesn't actually do or achieve anything. And real Christian love isn't like that. And yet sometimes what passes for love in the church is really just a veneer of niceness that covers over a spirit of selfishness and gossip. It ought not to be so in the church. John Murray once said, if love is the sum of virtue and hypocrisy the epitome of vice, then what a contradiction to bring these two things together. If love is the sum of virtue and hypocrisy the epitome of vice, then what a contradiction to bring these two things together. Real love is sincere. It is unhypocritical. It embraces the awkwardness of interpersonal relationships. It is profoundly sacrificial. It is solid gold the whole way through. More than that then, look at the second part of verse 9. More, real love will mean that, that we don't just love in a sincere and authentic and genuine way, but that we hate what is evil and cling to what is good. That means that real Christian love isn't just blind sentiment but that it is discerning. The verbs are both strong words, aren't they? Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. The picture on the one hand is one of repulsion, loathing, opposition to, that's what it means to hate. And then on the other hand, we're to cling to what is good. The picture is one of gluing ourselves inseparably to what God calls good. Real love is anything but sentimental. And so we must hate sin in the Christian life. It's impossible to flee sin and put sin to death if we really love it. And so actually, if we're, if we're really growing as Christians, then we should be growing in both love and hate at the same time. We should be growing in our love for God and for one another, but we should be growing in our hatred for our sin it feels like just about one of the most countercultural things you can say today, but real love, sacrificial love, really does hate. Then in the verse ten we get another glimpse of the weightiness of sacrificial love. Paul says we are to be devoted to one another. It's another earthy word, isn't it? it speaks of commitment. It's a word that means to keep going and going and going. It's a bit like a picture of a dog with a bone that we're to be relentless, devoted. We're to keep chewing. and We're not, we're not to keep chewing each other in church. That'd be really weird. But we're to be devoted to one another. It's a word that's sometimes used at funerals, isn't it? To describe the love of a, an elderly man for his wife. He was devoted to her and her care right to the very last days. That's the kind of love we're to show one another in the church. It's to be akin to familial, or brotherly love. And that's actually the word that Paul uses here, Philadelphia, to love brothers and sisters. That's the kind of love that we're to have for one another. Of course, that kind of love is hard sometimes. It's awkward. It's costly. It might involve shedding tears and sleepless nights and painful conversations. It's especially hard, perhaps, for many of our young people who are products of an incredibly individualistic culture, where deep relationships are all too rare and in truth are very disposable, but this is the kind of love that we are saved to. Self-denying love, not self-fulfilling or self-expressing love. You know, one of the things that I'm more and more convinced of that, that when we're talking to our children and young people, one of the things we have to teach them is that the words we put in front of the word self are incredibly important. The world all the time is telling them, Be true to yourself. Look inside yourself in order to find yourself and fulfill yourself. The Lord Jesus Christ says what? Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow after me. That's the kind of love that we're called to in the Christian life. And of course, this is the kind of love that God has shown us in the gospel, isn't it? He knows and sees us right down to the bottom. He knows about all the skeletons in our closets. But his heart towards us is one of doggedly committed, brotherly, sacrificial love. Always. You know that Jesus Christ has never had a moment where he looks at you and thinks, what am I doing with him or her? Why am I bothering? You might have plenty of moments like that about others. You may even have moments like that about yourself. But Jesus never has those moments about you. He is devoted to you, even at infinite cost to himself, no matter what. Sacrificial love then prioritizes others. So look at the second part of verse 10. Paul says that we are to honor one another. That means that how we treat one another and how we talk to one another and how we talk about one another really matters. We are to show honor. I used to quote Tim Keller quite a lot when I preached here. I'm going to change tack tonight and quote from his wife, Kathy, instead. In the early days of Redeemer Presbyterian, she was the the official director of communications for the church. And one of the phrases that she insisted the staff learn and take to heart was, speak as if you're always being overheard. It's quite challenging that, isn't it? Speak as if you're always being overheard. And the concern was to develop a culture of integrity and honesty, and an environment where people really did honor one another, even if no one else actually was listening. Christian communities should be places where we speak well of others, where we are eager to prioritize the needs of others above our own, where we are eager to honor them, and in doing so, honor the Lord Jesus Christ. Sacrificial love prioritizes others. Thirdly then, sacrificial love is patient Look at verses 11 and 12. They contain four little staccato sentences that all call us to patience. We're not to lose our zeal, but to keep our spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Something we really need God's help for, isn't it? That God would keep us hungry for him, zealous for his name, fervent in our service of him. Verse 12, that we might be joyful because of the hope that is ours. I think at first glance, we can, we can read verses 11 to 12 and think that they're only to do with our relationship with God. But I think because they come in the context of lots of instructions pertaining to our relationships with one another, that we ought to interpret them with that in mind. So to be joyful in hope means to keep on hoping and believing for what God might do in the lives of others. To keep trusting that God will be at work in his way and at his time. The more I reflect on the nature of gospel ministry, the more convinced I become that the things that we really need to keep remembering and believing are that God is often doing much, much more in people's lives than we realize. And sometimes we might be privy to some of that, but oftentimes we'll not be privy to any of that. And that's why we need to be both patient when things are difficult, verse 12, and then crucially also why we need to be persistent in prayer. Persisting in prayer. It may well be just about one of the most difficult things to do in the Christian life. But the best and most important things are always hard, aren't they? I don't know how much you remember about what life was like right back at the start of the pandemic. Maybe you've tried to erase that from your mind altogether. I remember reading an article at that time that described the the life of a man called James Fraser. Maybe you've never heard of him. He was a missionary to the village of Lizuland. He had some converts there. It's a little village at the, the foot of the Himalayas in China. Um, but one particularly harsh winter, the snowfall was so heavy that it meant he was unable to reach the village where he had planted a little church, and so the Lizhu people were completely cut off from his ministry. He was naturally very anxious about that, and so he decided to, to take the time that would he would normally have spent in a week traveling to the little village and conducting services of worship. It took him about three to five days to do that. He decided he would spend that time in prayer for the Lizoo people. And that's what he did. For the whole winter, he devoted himself to persistent prayer. And then spring and the thaw came. He made the trip up to the village with a little trepidation and much eagerness. And to his astonishment, Fraser discovered that the converts in the village had prospered in his absence. So much so, here's a direct quote from his account. The converts in the highlands of Lizuland had grown far more during the winter than my converts in the lowlands, the converts that I had been busy visiting and gathering all winter long. And from that point onwards, Fraser determined never to worry or fret when the snow stopped him from visiting the village. Rather, he looked upon it as a God-given invitation to pray for his people, and there are some missiologists who treat the, trace the great revival that China has experienced in the last 50 years, right back to that little revival that began in the foothills of that village in the Himalayas when James Fraser stayed at home during those winters and prayed. One of the very best things that the church can do today is be persistent in prayer. We won't get any pats on the back for it, We almost always feel as though there are more important and more productive things to be doing. We might never see the fruit or results of our investment, but sacrificial love is persistent in prayer. Charles Spurgeon described prayer as the slender nerve which moves the muscle of omnipotence. It's quite a thought, isn't it? That in the mystery of his sovereignty, God weaves the prayers of his people into his providential plans for his church and his world. Many of you are sitting here this evening because of prayers that were prayed for you that you never heard by people who you never really even knew. And yet I'm sure you're thankful that they persisted in prayer. I'm certainly thankful for that. And so it encourages us to be faithful in prayer and persistent even in the times, and perhaps especially in the times when it feels like little or nothing is happening. Fourthly then, sacrificial love involves action. Look at verse 13. There's the call in the first instance to share with one another in meeting physical needs and then to practice hospitality. It's one of the things that we remember specifically at Harvest, isn't it? It's really encouraging to hear about your efforts to support Tear Fund and their really commendable work. Our churches should be places where we cling loosely to our stuff and where we excel at sharing with others because we know and understand that the stuff that we have isn't really our stuff in the first place. We're to be those who know and live as though everything we really have is a gift to us from God. One of the challenges of having Toby and Eden, other than the fact that they don't like my preaching, clearly, <laughs> is that they, they struggle with the concept of sharing. I'm sure that's not particular to them. Um, it's even more chaotic when you throw their cousins into the mix and what tends to happen whenever everybody's fighting over one toy or one item we tend to just go here you have one you have one you have one that's why there's buzz light years coming out of my ears in our house our children from their earliest years learn to say no mine really really quickly but all we do when we hand out one to everyone is just exacerbate that problem of selfishness and self-centeredness Really what we ought to teach them is to understand, no, not yours, God's, and so ours. So that they know and learn that sharing really is about caring for other people. Verse 15 then, we are to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. So, real Christian love doesn't stand aloof from others. It doesn't hold people from arm, at arm's length. Real Christian love means getting right into the nitty gritty messiness of real relationships so that we're close enough to rejoice and close enough to cry. Real love sings and suffers. I wonder as you, you hear those sentences, which do you think is easier to rejoice with those who rejoice or to weep with those who weep? Our first instinct, I suspect, is to say the former. Rejoicing does seem easier than weeping. But is it? It can actually be the case that rejoicing in the joy and happiness and success of others is just about one of the hardest things to do in the world. If you're single, for example, and you see another engagement post on Instagram, it can be really hard to rejoice with those who rejoice. If you don't have children, you see another baby scan post on Instagram it can be gut-wrenchingly painful to rejoice with those who rejoice but rejoicing with those who rejoice is one of the marks that we have discovered what Jeremiah Burroughs described as the rare jewel of Christian contentment that we're content no matter what it is that we have and that we're wanting to share in the joy and success and contentment of our brothers and sisters And then we're to weep with those who weep or mourn with those who mourn. Those words do bring to mind the reality of grief and sorrow, don't they? They they remind me of a line from a TV show that I I watched during lockdown, One Division. Some of you might remember watching that. The famous line from One Division What is grief if not love persevering? Real love, sacrificial love, shows up most intensely when life is most painful for people. That should be the experience of belonging to a genuinely gospel-believing church. So, sacrificial love is committed, prioritizes others, is patient, involves actions. It's not complicated, really, is it? But it is incredibly hard. And yet, we ought to remember that this is a description of the good life, These aren't commands that are meant to burden us, but rather instructions that are meant to help us flourish as the people of God. But it is a battle, isn't it? You get a sense of that even as you you read the verses, I think. Even taking one or two of these things and going away and praying about them and working on them, it's a battle. But in this battle, let's remember that the greatest resource we have is the Lord Jesus himself, that he epitomizes the kind of sacrificial love that we've been talking about here, that this is the way that he loves us, We've already said that he is doggedly committed to us no matter what. But we do see in the Gospels, don't we, that he sacrificially prioritizes others. Mark's Gospel tells us that he came not to be served but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. Paul tells us elsewhere that he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant. He was the very embodiment of what it meant to prioritize others. And he was patient. He is the most patient being in the entire universe. One of the most beautiful lines in all of the Gospels is surely John 6, 37, where Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. It's one of the things I used to say to the young people here, that that the real biblical Jesus is not out to scold you, He's not out to deal with you reluctantly. His heart is one of deep perseverance and incredible patience. You might feel as though Jesus is bound to grow tired of you and your sin eventually. Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. He is the most patient being in the entire universe. And his love involved action, didn't it? He hasn't remained aloof from our pain and suffering. He has stepped down into this world. He has entered into our plight. He feels for our sadness. He shares in our gladness. He paid the price for your sin and mine once and for all at the cross so that we can say with confidence and know right down at the very bottom of our hearts that there really is nothing that needs to be done that hasn't already been done. His love involved action. It's not sentimental. It's not gold-plated. It's solid gold right the way through. And because he loves us like that, This is the kind of sacrificial love that he calls us to in his church. This is the good life. But what about love for our enemies? Just in a a few minutes, let's look at the verses at the end of the passage. This really is much shorter. You'll be glad to hear. Loving sacrificially in the church is one thing. Loving and serving our enemies is quite another. And yet this is deeply Christian, isn't it? To follow in the footsteps of our Savior who led down his life for us while we were his enemies. So, how do we treat those who are hostile to the Christian gospel? Paul gives us four instructions here. They're all phrased as prohibitions. So, verse 14, do not curse them. Verse 17, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Verse 19, do not take revenge. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil. And essentially, all four of those prohibitions are saying the same thing, fighting back, retaliating, taking revenge, are actually forbidden for the Christian. Those things are simply not compatible with the ways of Jesus. In fact, there are echoes of his teaching all over these verses, aren't there? You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you not to resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the cheek, turn the other one and let them strike you there also. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you see how Paul is drawing on the ethical teaching of the Lord Jesus in these verses? And again, these are hard things for us simply because it's so often our instinct to want revenge when we're wronged, isn't it? We all have a little inner lawyer that sits in our hearts and justifies us in our sinfulness and self-centeredness, and it tells us that you deserve to get right with those who have wronged you. You know, it feels inevitable that we're going to face a growing tide of hostility if we're to live as Bible-believing Christians in our culture. Fast forward 10 or 15 years, whenever my own children are teenagers, I expect that that tidal wave is just gonna be bigger and even more fierce by then. Who knows what opposition they might encounter if they're to live faithfully as Bible-believing Christians. And one of the things that I think we're gonna have to think about, particularly as we seek to disciple and form our children, is that as well as equipping them to be able to stand in the heat of the battle, which is immensely important, of course, we're also going to have to help them think about how to live when they are ostracized and treated despicably. And I'm convinced that that means we're going to have to teach our children about the radical art of biblical forgiveness, which is incredibly rare in our cultural moment. Before Toby started nursery, he went to a preschool. One day... He got bitten in preschool by another little kid. And I mean like, she went full Luis Suarez on him, right? <laughs> um, we had a little conversation in the car on the way home. I said, did she get put on the naughty step, Toby? Yes, daddy. Did she say sorry? Yes, daddy. Did you forgive her? Yes, daddy. Why do we forgive people, Toby? Because, daddy, God has forgiven us. And I find myself thinking, son, please Please be always that quick to forgive. It will save you and others a whole world of pain. Learning to forgive is deeply Christian. And our culture doesn't really have a category for it. But helping our children and young people to stand in the heat of the battle is going to be tremendously important. But learning how to respond whenever they are ostracized and opposed is also going to be tremendously important. And inasmuch as we think of ourselves as being in a battle with the culture around us, one of the things that we need to remember is is that the goal is not so much to overthrow and have the upper hand against our enemies, is it? But rather to see everyone defect to our side. That's the goal in this battle in the culture. And so we aren't to repay evil with evil. Rather, we are to love our enemies, to be ready to practice forgiveness And actually, as we do those things, we may well find that such actions might lead to a softening of heart in those who oppose us. I actually think that that's what Paul's hinting at in verse 20. Look at it with me briefly. You'll see he's quoting from Proverbs there. He says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, when I first read that, maybe like you, I thought, that's a bit weird. We're told to be nice to our enemies so that they will have coals heaped on their head. Does our kindness somehow exacerbate the severity of their judgment? It doesn't seem particularly Christian. It certainly doesn't seem to fit contextually with the rest of the passage. I don't think that that's what Paul's getting at here. Most commentators recognize that this reference to heaping coals on our enemy's head is actually a metaphor for what one writer has referred to as the burning pangs of shame. And so the thinking goes that as we respond to our enemies with love and kindness and generosity by meeting their needs, even when they have staunchly opposed us, then actually we might well lead to them seeing the error of their ways. Our kindness might lead to their contrition, our love might lead to their repentance. Now, it might not, of course, but it might. And actually, regardless of how people respond to our love and kindness, that is between them and the Lord. Our job is to be obedient to Christ and to show that something of His love, to show something of His love and how we treat those who oppose us. In many ways, that's what it means not to be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good. We leave the results to God and we know that He might use our sacrificial love in his sovereign purposes even for our enemies. So, this really is the good life. And I know from day to day it maybe doesn't always feel like that. And I know the more that you listen to the message from the culture that this is the antithesis of what we're being told the good life is. But this really is the good life. It's a battle, yes, but it's beautiful. It's incredibly costly. It's full of awkwardness and pain. (laughs) And yet, paradoxically, it is the path to deep and lasting joy, both in this life and in the life to come. So, one of the things that we should be doing is praying and asking that the Lord Jesus will so work these things in us that we really will be useful for Him in this church and in the world. So that when all really is said and done, We'll see many people come to know and love the Lord Jesus and that he and he alone will have all the glory. Let me pray for us before we sing our last hymn.